You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. Romans chapter 12. And we, we started the, a study on this a few weeks ago. Let me give you a little bit of background. Usually when you read the book of Romans, it's a very uh, prominent book in Christianity. Usually we read the first 11 chapters, particularly the first eight chapters. The first four chapters of Romans talk about what it means to be forgiven. The next uh, five through chapters eight talk about what it means to be in Christ. It's a very powerful idea, powerful concept. Paul uses and introduces all throughout his letters, but he elaborates it more uh, in this part of Romans. And he basically talks about how the human race was all in Adam, but there is a new race of humanity that is in Christ. Those of us that have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior are sort of a new race together that have a new internal uh, presence of, of Christ within us. And he introduces that idea and the implications of it. Then he talks about the, God's purposes for, for the Jews and Gentiles and how that works in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And then he comes to chapter 12. And he starts talking about nitty-gritty, about how to live it out. And, and the reason he does this, and the reason it's so he gives so much background, and he does it to get to this part of the Bible, is because of what was going on in Rome at that time. And, and back in those days, uh, there was an emperor named Claudius, And in the year 49, he made a decision. He decided to expel all the Jews from Rome. Now, Rome at that time had about a half a million to a million citizens. Probably maybe around 20,000 were Jewish. And maybe 10 to 20,000. And what the uh, Roman historian Satorian tells us is that he did this because of a dispute over Christ, that the, basically the Jewish people, the ones that had become Christians and the ones that weren't Christians yet were disputing so much about Christ. Claudius heard about it, got tired of it, and just kicked them out of the country. They all left. They were all expelled from the country. And they were gone until Claudius's death in 54. So it was about four years, maybe five years they were gone. So before they left, the church in Rome was composed of Jews and Gentiles, but it was mostly Jewish. And it was started by Jewish people. And so the, the church had a very Jewish flavor to it. They had kosher diet laws. They celebrated the annual feast. And they, they had a, a very Jewish routine to their worship. They were really Jewish in, in their religion, except for they believed Jesus was the Messiah. Yet when they all left, and it was just these Gentiles, and there was a smaller number of them that took over the church, they began to discard some of the traditions. They began to discard some of the feasts and the festivals. They completely discarded the dietary laws. And what happened is these Jews came back to their church. One, they saw, wow, this church has really grown a lot. There are a lot of Gentiles here now. And they just weren't practicing their religion the way they had been before. They weren't doing the ceremonies. They weren't doing these things. That's one reason Paul spends so much time on what it means to be a Christian in this book because he's like, okay, ceremonies aren't what it's about. You can do a ceremony if you want to. You can have, eat whatever diet you want, but that's not what 
Christian spirituality is. And so they're coming back and they're just getting integrated. And so it's, there's kind of a, it's, it's, they're just sort of awkwardly getting back to know each other. So Paul is just writing this letter in light of that dynamic. And so we looked at the first week, he talked about what it is to do the will of God. It's something he describes it as good, acceptable, and perfect. Everybody here wants your life to be good, acceptable, and perfect. That's what the Bible says God's will is. And he says there's a way to do it. There's two things. One is, he says, make your body a living sacrifice. Just let the whole, the entirety of your life be worship. Let, it be, let everything in your life be about Christ. Not just church on Sunday, but our work on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, our relationships, our family, our recreation, whatever we do, let Christ be the center of everything. Make your life a living sacrifice. And then he says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't just do what everybody's doing mindlessly, but be transformed by renewing your mind. And that just simply means to, to not just sort of mindlessly go in the direction of everybody else, but instead have something going on within you that makes you live differently than everybody else. And that's something going on within you he called renewing your mind. That means staying in the Scripture, worship, having yourself immersed in truth and in Christ and what He's about. And then the next week thing He talked about last week was how we all have different gifts and we all need to use them. And then this week He comes and He's, he, <clears throat> he's going to begin to do something here through these last several verses of this chapter, verses 9 through 22. And what He's going to do, and, and what I would describe this at, is He's going to talk about how to fine-tune yourself spiritually. Um, our musicians up here, they, they, that were playing up, performing up here before, they all have instruments they use. You know, they have guitars and pianos and uh, whatever else they, they use up here. And, and, and what, what you might want to imagine is what, what God is doing in this city, in a church or whatever, sort of building a symphony of multiple instruments. And every instrument's important. Every instrument's got to make this, its sound. Every instrument has a a part to play where they, they hit a certain note. And, and, and so everybody's important. You and I are like an instrument. And if you want to use an instrument before you play and perform and you want to do a good job, what you do with that instrument is you, you tune it. Right, guys? You tune that instrument. You get the guitar out, and you maybe have seen the musicians. They'll, they'll play a chord, and they'll listen to it, and then they'll make adjustments, and they'll get it right. And there's all these, you know, there's A's and B's and C's. I don't know anything about music, but I know those, they, they use, there's, you know, you want an A to sound like an A, you want an E to sound like an E, you want an F sharp to not sound like an F flat, because we don't want an F flat when you're supposed to have an F sharp, so you got to, you do certain things and you just tune, you tune your piano, you tune your guitar, you get it, and, and the idea is this, when an instrument is perfectly tuned, when it is in tune, and it, is, it, is, it plays what it's supposed to be, that instrument can produce the most beautiful sound. It can produce the most maximum it possibly can. And this is what God wants to do in our life. He wants every one of us to be a fine-tuned instrument. Fine-tuned. To where when he hits a certain note, it plays. When he hits this note, it plays. When it's your time in the symphony to perform, you are on point, whether it's with a group 
or whether it's all by yourself, you are on point. You are hitting a note. You are glorifying the conductor. You are glorifying the piece. You are accentuating the work of art that he is putting together. That's what uh, God's doing in our life. And this is kind of the, the tone Paul takes here. And, and what he does, as he does, is he, gives a, he just has a long list of things that are involved in that fine-tuning. So let's kind of review those real quickly. Let me make a couple comments about them, and maybe you want to look over them again later on in your own time just to, to, to think about these. But first thing in verse 9, he kind of has the heading of this. Verse 9, he says two things. Number one, it's, it translates, love must be sincere. And then he says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Love must be sincere. Now, this doesn't always translate, particularly this passage doesn't translate as great in English as it is in the Greek. But what he literally says is two words, love and sincere. Love and the word genuine or authentic. Love, genuine. And what he is doing is he is describing what love is. Love is authentic. It's genuine. It's sincere. And the Greek word he uses here is really interesting. It's the Greek word I hope I say it right, Hippocrates. Hippocrates. And guess what word we get from the word Hippocrates? Hypocrite. And back in those days, uh, when they did a play and they did a performance, there would be several actors they would literally call Hippocrates. And what they would do is during the play, they would wear different masks. They would wear one mask during one scene. They would wear another mask during another scene. They were one character in this setting. They were another character in this setting. They acted this way here, but they acted this way here. And they were, they were a, it was an actor that could just do multiple roles. It's like uh, Eddie Murphy in the movie uh, Coming to America. He was the barber, and he was the prince, and he was, the, he was several different characters. This is what they, and this is what, and, and, and literally the word in the Greek means Love is anti-hypocritical. A Hippocrates. Anti-hypocritical. It is, love is not fake. Love is not staged. Love is not a performance. Love is authentic. Love is not just a sentiment. Love is not just a placard sign you put on your front porch and your front lawn so everybody can see how wonderful and brilliant and how virtuous you are. Paul says love is authentic. It's genuine. It is, it is unstaged. It is a non-performance. Love is something that can be really brutal and it can be in the, the nitty-gritty and it can be a, a, a tough, grueling thing to go through. Love, sincere. And then he tells us to do two things that are mutually uh, related to each other. One is we are to hate evil and love good, cling to what's good. Hating evil literally means the, the word would be maybe translated as abhor evil. And it's the, it's the idea of how you react to a terrible smell. Anybody smell something terrible in your life? What happens when you smell something terrible? You go, you just what? You, you shun it. You, you get away from it. You abhor, oh. You know, you abhor it. He said, this is how you treat evil. Evil. You, ah, no, you just get, I don't want to. You abhor it. You get away from it. And then he says, cleave to what is good. 
cling to it. It means glue, adhere to what is good. So this is how Paul is starting this setting about how we calibrate our lives to, 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 to him. We, number one, love is genuine. You hate what is evil. You cleave to what is good. Then he goes through here. And the next few verses, starting in verse 10, he does a literary form back in those days called a paranesius. It's a million-dollar word. You could have gone to church a lot of places this morning. But you came to a place where they say, paranesius. Paranesius is an old literary form. And what it means is you basically are getting a bunch of unrelated, uh, eclectic sort of comments and statements together that are trying to guide somebody in a certain direction. It's just called paranesius. And, and if you read this literally in the Greek, it's going to basically be a noun and a description of that noun. He's going to say one word, and then he's going to describe it. And he's going to basically say, this is how he wants you guys to live. This is what genuine love is about. This is what shunning evil and cleaving to what good's about. And he just, he, 10 of them he goes through. Let me look at some of these 10, if you'll bear with me real quick. Number one is verse 10. He says, be devoted to one another in love. Literally what he says, devoted one another. Devoted each other. Devoted each other. Devoted each other. He goes on here and he says, honor above yourself. Now we don't have a word one word that is above yourself, so he has to write it out. But he would say, honor, uh, basically honor others, honor above self. And it was just, a, a, again, a hard-hitting word about honoring and about esteeming people above yourself. Be devoted in love. Honor over each other. Verse 11, uh, uh, never be lacking in zeal. Literally what it means is zeal accelerating. Zeal accelerating. Zeal means to boil a pot. It means to work something up to a heat level. How many have ever been hot spiritually? You know what I mean by that? Think about it in your life. I say that. You know what that means. It means you're, you're on fire. You, you go to a, a, a church service and you leave and you're leaving and you're just on fire. You, know? you get around some Christian friends and you're, you, you worship the Lord or you get in a Bible study and you just are heightened spiritually. Zeal. Here's what can happen with zeal. It can... It can, you, you just sort of can, it can wane over time. Spiritual passion can wane over time. And, and, and Paul's saying, no, 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 zeal, accelerate. Stay hot spiritually. That doesn't mean be emotional, and just, but, but deep down, have a fervent passion for the Lord. Let it accelerate. Let it, let it keep moving. He talks about the Spirit in the next phrase in verse, verse 11. Let your, you know, keep your spiritual fervor. And he would say, spiritually fervent. Your spiritual condition, he says, be fervent. Spiritually fervent, ignited. Let that be where you are uh, within yourself. And he goes on here, he talks about the Lord serve. The Lord be yielded to him. Again, two words, pithy words in the way he's, he's phrasing it. He goes on in, in, in uh, verse 12, he talks about hope joyful. Hope joyful. You know, how many of us have hopes? Hopes are just powerful things. Things that we want to see God do in our life or through our life. Maybe we want to see people impacted in a certain way. Maybe we want to have certain personal breakthroughs in our life. We're going through, maybe we're struggling with a sin or an area in our life. We just go, man, I just want to get through it. And, and, and he's saying, when you're going through hope, 
you have hopes, rejoice. Any, any journey toward fulfilling your hopes is a battle. You know that? Because hope is something kind of beyond you, kind of something you need God to, to bring about to some extent. You may pursue it, but it's like, well, just, it's something that just at times can feel beyond you. It can feel like a fantasy or a dream and not reality. But, but he's saying, look, as you're going through those battles of hope, to hold on to your dreams, to hold on to what God puts in your heart, to believe, he says, you know what, rejoice. When you get discouraged, when things get down, you've got to be rejoicing. You've got to have joy. Keep hope, keep rejoicing, keep, keep positive, keep uh, fresh emotionally. And he goes on and he, he um, talks about in prayer, or excuse me, uh, in, in, in affliction, be patient. Again, he says affliction, trouble, tribulation, battles, patient. And the word patient means perseverance. It means you just be tenacious. When there's tough times, when things are difficult, you be tenacious. You be tough. You bore through it. You fight through it. In, in tribulation, you fight and you grit and you, you move through it. You, you, tr- you, you, you be tenacious and you keep fighting. And he goes on and he, he says in verse 13, in, in, uh, the next, in the verse 12, he talks about prayer and he says, be faithful, be consistent. That's challenging to me. Prayer, consistent. You think of prayer. How am I going to tune my prayer life? Oh, it's tune, tune it to consistency. Tune it that way. And then he goes on in verse uh, 13. He talks about uh, when people have needs, share. Need, share. Need, share. You see a brother in need? You see somebody in your church family's got a need? You share. Instinctive. He said, that's what you calibrate yourself to. And then he, he goes on and he, he ends this in, uh, and he says that when you they also practice hospitality. Practice hospitality, practice. And the word literally means to press. It means you just press. You, you create a mold. You create a groove. You press. You practice. You get better at hospitality. That means inviting people over, meeting new people, reaching out to people, making people feel warm and welcome. He says, press, be good at that. Get, I'm just kind of shy. I'm not a real, na-. it's okay. He says, practice. You know what happens when you practice? You get better at something, right? He says, practice it. Get better at it. Be better at it than you are now. Keep being hospitable. So he goes on here and he has those 10 sort of pithy sayings that he does you know, in that manner. And then Paul goes on here. He says in verse 14, Bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Now, here's what what Paul is doing here, and he's talking about something that we need to calibrate our life to is to be kind of emotionally connected to the people around us. Now, somebody's mourning, we need to mourn. Somebody's going through something. Somebody's having a tough time. We need to mourn with them. We need to be there with them. We need to sort of emotionally carry them through it. If somebody is rejoicing, you rejoice with them. Sometimes when somebody's doing great in somebody's life, we, we don't rejoice. We go, well, why not me? He's saying, don't do that. Rejoice with them. Forget, forget you. Mourn with those that mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. He says, live in harmony with one another. 
as, and he says, as much as it's up to you, do your best to get along. And, and uh, he goes through that. And then, then at the end, he talks about this. And it's a very powerful thing. He says, associate with the lowly. Be willing to associate with the lowly. Find people that are not where you're at and build friendships with them. Value them. Notice them. Make sure they're seen with the lowly. You know, it's very easy to walk around and, and name drop and let everybody know who, who your big friends are. It's very easy to do. And it just impresses people. And you know what God's really impressed with? Is where you can name drop the lowly. When there are people that can give you absolutely nothing in return, and you're willing to, to be involved in their life, you're willing to serve, you're willing to give, you're willing to make a difference in their life, that's when and where you will find yourself. We always think we're going to find ourselves if we can just move up the, the status stratosphere and we can just get up in. And all that, and that's certainly fine. But we really find ourselves when we go down low. When you're low. When you get low. I, I am so proud of Marvin, our first church member. He literally is our first church member. Marvin never attended a church service for years, but he was our first church member. He got us started, moved away before we, we ever even started services. But you know, Marvin is a is a can I, can I tell him a little bit about you? Don't mind if I, okay, I don't want to embarrass you here, but Marvin's a yachtsman. He builds yachts. He has, uh, if I named you families, if I, I, could, I could name big, big names that he knows well, that know him. He's an expert in his field. When, when somebody, he, he has helped design and build $100 million yachts, and the people that, that do those are kind of important people. You know, from other countries, he, uh, uh, the wealthiest man in Mexico, he over, that wasn't a drug dealer. I should preface, <laughs> preface that. <laughs> he oversaw his fleet of yachts and ran his whole company. Marvin has been with big people. But Marvin, this year, was in Turkey building a yacht. The guy had some delays because of COVID, and he was there for three months. And he met Sauber while he was there. In a hotel, Mar Marvin was, um, Sauber was working there illegally. He got to know him. And what's really powerful is the way they actually, the way he found out Sauber was a Christian is Sauber was looking out for one of his Christian friends who needed a job. He got him a job with Marvin. Uh, the guy, Marvin was driving he and his wife around and was playing Christian music. And they were like, what kind of music is that? And Marvin was like, oh, it's Christian praise music. And they said, are you Christian? He goes, Yes. He said, so are we. And then he really found out their story. And I don't want to get into too many details, but Marvin has really laid his life down to help this great couple come and, and really save their life and, and, and continue to serve the Lord and just really make a powerful testimony. In other words, he could, Marvin could put the names of the, the grand, grand people in our world but the most powerful thing is that when you go low, you find yourself. Without that, he's just another empty, loudmouth, making money. 
But when, you, when you're willing to go low, when you're willing to, to find yourself there, you find the why of your life in, in helping others when you go low. It's when you really find yourself. And Paul's saying, man, be willing to do that. He says, don't be conceited. Who do you think you are? You're a human being who is sinful and defiled and polluted, and you were cleaned by the blood of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Who do you think you are that you can't go low? Who do you think you are that, you're above, that you can't associate with somebody that's not cool and not in and not your cup of tea? He says, look, go low. Be willing to do that. And powerful things happen in our lives as we take that journey. And Paul continues here and he closes up. He has this last thing to, in verse 17. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what was right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, verse 20, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, what's he talking about there? Is he says, one thing, if it's up to you, do the very best you can to be at peace in every relationship you're in. As much as you can, be at peace. Do everything you can. You can't always, but do the very best you can to get along to be at peace. And then he goes through and he says, he, and he quotes a Proverbs. It's in Proverbs chapter 25, it's verse uh, 21 through 22, where it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat, thirsty, give him something to drink. And it says this phrase, in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I used to read that and think, well, like, if you're nice to him, is God just going to like really give him an extra dose of wrath? It's it kind of felt that way, and it, it's, <clears throat> that's not what he's talking about. <clears throat> Excuse me. But back in those days, and this is from the very ancient Near East, and particularly in Egypt, they developed in Egypt, there was a tradition that if somebody was wrong about someone, if I had, had, had thoughts about you and I'd said things about you and they were wrong, and I wanted to f just formally make it right. I had spread things. What I would do, and the ceremony you'd do, is you'd put, a, a, you'd put a, some cloth on your head, but then you'd put on top of it a container that had burning coals in it. And you would walk around, and it was called heaping burn. I want to heap burning coals on my head. It means I want to admit I was wrong. And I am ashamed of what I said or what I did. And what, what Paul is saying here is that, you know what? If you just come back on people and you just escalate and escalate and escalate, eh, you know, that's not, that's not how you do it. You're not, you can't overcome evil by more evil. You can overcome evil by good. And if you reach out and if you love and if you think and if you, if you care about people and you reach out to them, you'll heap stuff on their head. I remember when I was in Atlanta one day, just my last few months in Atlanta, I remember one time I went to a gas station. It was a quick trip there in, in Vinings, and it was just like the biggest trip, quick trip in the history of the 
company, I think. Just, and it's always busy, people. And I, I pulled up, you know, I was driving around, the people were using the gas things. I, I pulled up and, and pulled into the gas thing eventually. And I think I cut somebody off. I literally didn't know I did. But there was a guy there, and I think he thought he was coming in. And he drove by me, and he, he, he told me I'm number one with his middle finger. <laughs> I was like, just hung. And he was a bigger guy. So I thought, what do I do? And I got out here, and I, I was doing my gas. I just felt bad about it. I thought I didn't realize I'd done it. So I saw him over there getting his, and I thought, so I walked over to him. And, you know, he was bigger than me, but he didn't know that I'm not crazy. So I figured, you know, what? <laughs> so I walked up to him, and I just said, hey, did I just cut you off? He said, uh, he, he, I said, man, I am so sorry. I said, look, I'm, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't live, act like that. I said, I didn't, please me, I didn't know. He said, and I just bought his gas for him. He just melted. He was like, oh, I'm, man, I'm, I'm, no, it was, me, it was me. I'm sorry. It probably was you, but that's a cool. But you just, you just, it was, it was the best $30 I've ever spent in my life. It was $30. Got a chance to tell him about Christ. Got a chance to, to some extent. And just, it was great. Listen, overcome evil with good. And you just keep coals on. And it's just a great thing. Paul says, this is how you live. This is what we calibrate ourselves to. And, and let, let me just close it up. And this is, again, these are a, Paul's writing here. He's throwing out a lot of thoughts. They aren't real structured together. But let me kind of tie it back up just to say this to you. You are an instrument of the Lord. You're part of the symphony. You're part of the work, the noise the song he wants to perform in your world, in this city, in the world you live in. You're part of what he's doing. You're part of what he's saying. You're part of the sound he's making. And you're very important. Who you are, what you are, the way you're crafted, what's unique about you, what's distinct about you, it's very important. And being calibrated, being in tune, being the instrument you can be is hard work. It is grueling. It is painful. It takes being honest with yourself when you're, when you're out of tune, but it is so worth it. It is so powerful to live your life in tune to the Lord, to pay the price, to make the changes, to make the adjustments, to be honest, own what we need to own, be that person. So I want to encourage you as we, we close the service, close this part of the service, to, to do that. Calibrate yourself. Look over this list of things Paul writes. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you as you look it over yourself. How do I need to adjust? And, and watch God do great, great, great things in your life. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for its power. We pray you'd make it alive to us. Things you said to the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago to a, a church in some very interesting circumstances. We pray that they would resonate with us in our world and help us to be calibrated to you and to your voice and to be an instrument uh, that you're proud of, an instrument you can use Help us to be a part of the noise, the sound, the, the orchestra you are performing.
Help us to do it well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in His purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.